right. Without further ado, I would like to introduce our next speaker of the day to wrap up our day one of Print Hustlers Comp, Dr. Sherry Walling. Very interested in uh, hearing what Dr. Sherry Walling has to say because I heard Dr. Sherry Walling on a podcast. I was listening to a podcast called Mixergy. It's for tech companies and they interview a lot of different founders. If you listen to something like NPR, How I Built This, it's very similar. I heard her come on and talk about mental wellness, mental health, specifically for business owners. As a shop owner, you're doing so many different things, right? And then you transition, just like Danny talked about, you guys transition into doing the things that you're most passionate about to be able to continue to elevate the business. This is not an easy transition. And Dr. Walling has written a book about it called Keeping Your Shit Together. We just did a giveaway, but if you didn't get a, a copy, you can be able to purchase it on Amazon. So you can be able to search for that and pull it up. She's also a big podcaster and has her own podcast called Zen Founder. Z-E-N Founder. Search for it on your favorite podcast app so you guys can pull it up. Without further ado, thanks so much, Dr. Sherry Walling. Hey, it is so good to be with you all. Can you hear me okay? Everything good? Yeah, you're great. Awesome. Perfect. Always, uh, we do the the sound check beforehand, but there's always the uh, outside chance that something uh, gets funky in the middle. Um, <laughs> so good. I'm glad it's all working. Hey, thank you so much for inviting me and for giving a little bit of your time to a conversation around how to stay mentally well and healthy while running your business, because it um, is not easy. And I don't think it's something that most of us give enough time to thinking about. And um, as Bruce mentioned, I'm a clinical psychologist, I have a PhD, and I have spent the vast majority of my career working with people who are in high intensity jobs. So often that is a you know, uh, ER doctors or people in the military, people who have just a tremendous amount of pressure and stress in the context of their work, but it's also work that they find really meaningful. So my job as a psychologist is to figure out how do we keep you in your work even though there are things about your role that can be really hard for you psychologically or from a mental health perspective. And somewhere along the lines, I married an entrepreneur. My husband, Rob, is a serial entrepreneur. He started, among other things, a company called Drip, which is an email marketing uh, software company and now runs a company called Tiny Seed. Um, which is, you know, for folks who are in the, the software world more than the printing world. But um, I started to hear in my conversations with Rob and with the many entrepreneurs who are sort of in my living room every evening, a lot of the same challenges that my clinical patients were experiencing in that lots of folks who were running businesses found it really hard to turn off their brain at night. Lots of folks who were running businesses found um, it really hard to sleep well. So I heard a lot of sleep disturbance. I also heard a lot about folks having a lot of challenge in their marriages or in their primary relationships because it seemed like they were struggling to balance their attention between family life, home life, and maybe things going on at work. And, you know, unfortunately, also in the course of my um, kind of shift towards working with entrepreneurs exclusively around issues of mental health, there are a number of uh, high-profile suicides in the entrepreneurial community. You 
probably would be familiar with Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain, but the tech world has had its own string of suicides among just you know, brilliant, successful, highly functional people who from the outside, it looks like, wow, you've got everything going for you. How did this happen? And I think hearing some of those conversations and reading some of those stories and knowing some of those folks who, again, have so much to contribute to the world creatively, but are also just really struggling, it has led me to focus um, you know, my life's work on thinking about well-being and mental health among people who are doing innovative, creative things. So I think one of the things that's important to um, to acknowledge right off the bat is that in your life as an entrepreneur or business owner, you're experiencing some different mental health challenges than people who are running a nine to five business. This doesn't mean don't do it. It doesn't mean it's bad for you. I'm not discouraging it, but I, I think it's really important to tell the truth about what's hard so that we can also assume responsibility for proactively um, looking for solutions and different strategies. So when we think about entrepreneurship, you know, some of the things that are unique are the way in which it can ooze into every moment of our life, um, the way in which the boundaries between work and family or work and home are not at all clear. If you are growing something or launching something, you are thinking about it all the time. It is the problem that you're solving. It is the, you know, the thing that you're thinking about. And I, you know, lots of people love their work, but that's not necessarily the same burden or the same responsibility that the nine to fivers may have. And with that, I think comes an elevated level of anxiety, of a busy, busy mind where it's hard to shut it off or hard to shift your thinking patterns. Um, there is some evidence that entrepreneurs are more likely to um, receive medication for anxiety. They're more likely to, you know, talk to their doctors and and say, "I'm not doing well. I'm not sleeping. I can't. I can't sort of stop thinking about these problems." So, actually, though, it's interesting to notice both entrepreneurs and their significant others are more likely than nine to fivers to um, request uh, um, medication or prescription for anxiety. So, you know, I think when we begin to realize like, hey, this great thing that I'm building might have kind of a toll on me, um, you know, it's an important thing to recognize. So actually, a little interjection. I'm just joined by um, – my my better half here. This is Rob Walling. This is my husband. Hi, um, and it is, again, as I shared, sort of his fault that I've specialized in this um, line of work. So I, this is a total like surprise. Sorry, Bruce. But I just I was like, I'm doing this thing. And um, maybe you could join me. So I was just talking about um, some of the things that make or some of the burdens that entrepreneurs carry that make the entrepreneurial mindset a little bit challenging for mental health. So I was just talking a little bit about anxiety. Um, but I know that one of the things that you've really thought about and worked through in the context of your entrepreneurial life is the challenge of things like imposter syndrome or where people are trying to launch something or start something or make something, but it feels like there's lots of reasons why they aren't the person who could be successful. You want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've I've talked to and frankly am a successful serial entrepreneur who still wonders, could I do this again? Or did I just get lucky? You know, and I don't know what it is in our psyche that convinces us that 
it's like the data shows that you've launched three companies and and been successful and yet uh imposter syndrome is yeah it's a really big deal i think there's i don't know if entrepreneurship attracts like feels like it it attracts us people who have something to prove in a way and and i think some people are trying to prove something to the voice in their head that their that their mom or their dad always said like you can't be good enough sometimes i think maybe it is you can be good enough and you will do great things i think like i was told that by my parents mm -hmm. and so i didn't working a 9 to 5 always felt like well shouldn't i be doing great things because that's what i was told the whole time growing up you know i think it, it feels it's like like this combination of pressure i think also a lot of entrepreneurs don't necessarily um, do super well on the trodden, the well-trodden path. So I know a lot of CEOs, executives, people who are really, really high functioning as entrepreneurs who struggled or even dropped out of high school. Oh yeah. Like just couldn't toe the line. So they needed to find alternative routes for themselves to be successful. Yeah. A big, uh, yeah, I think like being unemployable is this phrase you hear, but I think that is almost it's like, I don't particularly like authority and I don't like the guardrails and I don't like the path, right? Of grammar school, high school, college, whatever. Um, I, I mean, I know entrepreneurs from both sides. Like I went to college, I did fine in high school, but a lot of folks I know really do have that, uh, that need to do their own thing in their own way. And I think that can be, that can be a challenge. It's a blessing and a curse, yeah. right? The creativity, the problem solving, the innovation that drives you as an entrepreneur, that drives you to say, I'm going to do this my way, not just go work for another shop down the street. Um, it's such a gift and it's a great way to be in the world. But the downside is, of course. It's chaos. It can be just perpetual chaos. It can be boredom. It can be unhappy with the static quo, status quo perpetually, the arrival fallacy, right? I mean, I do that. I did this all the time where it was like, if I could just have software products that paid my bills and I literally make 120K a year and I didn't have to work for anyone else, that'd be amazing. Well, I did that in 20, it was 2008. And then I was like, huh, well, it's kind of boring. So if I only had a software product that did a quarter million a year, you know, and then, and then I did that. And then it was just the next thing and the next thing and the is. next thing. And that's, that's our, that's our strength is that we set these goals and we're driven to accomplish them, but it, you gotta be careful with it because you have to celebrate the wins. I think that's something that you taught me early on and that I have not done a great job of doing, but you've encouraged me to is, and you work so hard and you stress so much and you get a lot done. Like when that awesome moment happens, the launch or the big customer or the, the sale of your company or whatever, just take some time and really celebrate that with yourself, with your team, with your, your spouse or significant other. I mean, I think that's a big piece of it, right? Is they're on that journey with you too. Yeah. <laughs> I think, um, and related, I think one of the things that I, as a psychologist, spend a lot of time talking with entrepreneurs about, perhaps especially now in an era of COVID, which has created exponentially more uncertainty and challenge. Um, but that's the topic of burnout. And I think burnout, at least in my circles, gets tossed around as like, oh, I'm just kind of burnt out. It gets tossed around as something that like is really normal and everybody goes through. And I want to say, you know, as a doctor, like, yes, it's pretty common, but that doesn't mean it's normal. When we're talking about burnout, really true burnout, we're talking about a, a neurological phenomenon in which your brain is really overwhelmed. And it begins this pattern of symptoms in which when you're burnt out, you feel really detached and fatigued. Um, you're no longer passionate or engaged in your work. You're no longer like excited about growth 
or maybe whatever new project is on the horizon, you are, it's like you're dragging. You don't have that spark. You don't have that oomph. You don't have that energy, which can, I think, lead people to feel very cynical and withdrawn. They might be, you know, you might make fun of your customers or you might feel really snippy at your teammates. You might have a, a series of patterns begin to kind of creep into your life where you are irritable and unkind and cynical and just like difficult to work with. And then the last kind of component of burnout is a sense of not of not no personal efficacy. No matter how hard you work or no matter how successful you are objectively from the outside, you feel like you're never good enough or your work is never done. And so I think we all have days like that. Like right? we all have days where we're like, okay, I'm working really hard, nothing's getting accomplished, or um, I'm just really sort of irritable with everyone in my life, or frankly, I just got up and I'm just tired. I just woke up tired, and that's pretty normal. But when burnout, that feeling persists for days and weeks and months on end, we can see in brain scans significant changes in the structure and the function of your brain. Which is, you know, I think really, really important for people to realize that when you're when you're wilting at work, when you're not thriving, um, there are very significant long-term consequences to that. It's not just like a badge that you endure. And I think that's the thing that I hear in entrepreneurial circles a lot, like bust, you know, bust your booty, like work, 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 work. Of course, you're going to get burnt out. That's part of killing it. That's part of growing a successful business. And you know, I, I would say there's got to be ways to get the work done, pursue the goals and the growth that you want without like literally frying your brain. Yeah. And I, my burnout story is from 2015 and I was growing uh, this SaaS app called Drip and I was taking on a bunch of tasks. I was doing tasks that I was capable of doing, but that I didn't enjoy doing because I was trying to, we were bootstrapped, didn't have a lot of money, had 10 employees and everyone was there. I needed the salespeople. I needed, um, you know, developers building product. So any task that fell outside of driving the business forward, I took on. So I was doing all this just stuff I hated, right? This is like HR and operations and legal and and your every piece of the business at piece. one time. It was a, it was not sustainable. But here's the thing is I couldn't see it when I was in it, right? I mean, I'm married to you, a psychologist. We'd been married 15 years by that point. You'd think that I would have recognized the signs, but I didn't. All right. I was like, I don't think you're okay. <laughs> I was not okay. And it was exactly what you said. I, I couldn't see it from where I was. And I didn't want to go to work. And I was the leader, right? I was the founder, CEO of this company. And it was... I didn't know what to do. And that was the, I wish I knew I'd known, like, I, should I gone to therapy? Like I probably should have just gotten a therapist. Right. And been like, let's talk this out. Cause it would help me think it through. And, and I didn't. And then went, of course, went through an acquisition, which was great outcome, but was even more at even more stress on top of burnout. And it took me a long time to recover from that yeah. months and months. Yeah. And I think that's the truth of, of that kind of damage that acc accumulates over time is yeah. that when you, get that far into a burnout trajectory, there's really no way to reset except for taking a pretty significant amount of time off, which, you know, if you're running a, a small print shop, like it's almost impossible to do. So it just becomes the new normal where you slog through without finding your work to be very meaningful, without feeling like you're able to cross off significant tasks and kind of like you're always on the losing end of the, the energy game. You're always tired. You're always, um, 
behind. Does it take, you said significant time. Are you talking like a month, two months? I mean, you it's going to You know, vary, when people though. are really burnt out, it actually, it, it does vary, but really we have some pretty good data on how long it takes some of the neurons that fray or mm -hmm. disconnect when someone is in really serious burnout. The brain changes. That's, that's the scan I mentioned. We can yeah. see it. And it takes about six weeks for those connections to be repaired. So it, if you let these things creep up too long, in, in certain edge cases, people really do become quite incapacitated from burnout and have to go on disability or take a significant amount of time off, which again, nobody wants. It's not good for your business. It's not good for you. Um, and thankfully, it is largely preventable, which we'll talk about in a second. But before we talk about prevention or even some of the the strategies and tactics that you can use to hopefully not get to some to such a a, a bad spot, um, I wanted to mention depression a little bit um, because uh, again, some of the early data from the way that the pandemic is affecting all of us is that we're seeing increases in depression really across the board from little kids all the way to, um, you know, those of us who are grownups who are work busily working at our jobs and the cumulative effect of so much uncertainty, so much, um, just financial ups and downs and, you know, am I going to have a job? Is my business going to survive? Are people going to need my product? Does anybody have money? Let's talk about supply chain in China. I mean, there's lots and lots of stressors that just sort of hit all at once, right alongside the fact that, like, so, um, that creates a situation which is pretty easy for depression and a sense of helplessness and hopelessness to really sink in. And I think we often think of depression as sadness, um, and, and that's part of it. But for me as a clinician, the thing that I really notice that make me worry for people is that combination of feeling helpless, like super stuck, and hopeless. Like they can't even imagine a different way or a better way of feeling. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm trying to think. I don't think that I have struggled with depression really much in my life, but I've always had elevated levels of anxiety and then I've hit burnout at different times. Now, when I was burned out, I felt help a little bit helpless and a little bit hopeless, but I don't, I don't feel like it was full blown like I couldn't get out of bed, you know, depression or anything. Yeah. Is that more, is that, would that be just more of a genetic bent or what would cause some people to have it and me to really not, have, you know, have struggled with all these other things? But sure. Depression? Yeah, no, I think people's, people's bodies are sort of neurochemically geared toward one stress response or another stress response. So anxiety that, um, rumination or not being able to think about something else, like let's solve the problem. Let's think, let's think, 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 which is sort of like how you're bent yeah. is, is just one kind of neurochemical leaning when faced with overwhelming stress. And so when faced with overwhelming stress, anxiety is kind of like it, it's activating. It's like you're awake and you're like rattled and Depression is, uh, in some ways, the other end of the spectrum. When faced with overwhelming stress, you kind of shut down. And it's like, oh, I just don't have the energy. Everything sort of slows down. Um, and people's bodies are just different in how they respond when they're under pretty significant amount of stress. I mean, the other thing that's probably worth mentioning in terms of mental health um, consequences of, um, of COVID, but you know, COVID plus entrepreneurship is um, substance use. 
um, which I think, again, becomes sort of normative. I know lots of my friends are talking about quarantinis, and I think a lot of people are drinking a lot more than they normally would because you're you're stuck at home and there's just like limited things to do, but lots of stress. And so to feel like you have some pattern of like, okay, I'm done with whatever work I have to do today, and now I crack open the bottle. Um you know, that obviously can have negative consequences if it's unchecked and goes on a long period of time. And I think um, alcohol in particular can really drive other mental health conditions like depression because it is a sedative. It does disturb our sleep. It makes all of our coping a little bit harder when it gets out of whack. So, you know, I think I love a good cocktail as much as everybody else, but it's one of those things to be aware of in yourself, especially in a time of elevated pressure or an uncertainty. Wow. So let's talk about My some girl. things that people can do. <laughs> I'm like the bearer of bad news. Know, like here's so all the sad. bad things that will happen to you because you're an entrepreneur and uh, you know, that's not exactly the heart of my mission. But yeah. so as you think about your life as an entrepreneur in the times of high pressure or stress, what have been a couple of the go-to things that have really helped you manage your mental health and your mindset? Yeah. I mean, I have a, I have several. One big one for me is sanity checking things with an outside party. And I'm going to say, I think you and I both agree, it's probably not going to be your spouse or significant other. Cause I mean, I mean, you're they're not an outside party. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're your first investor and they've got a lot writing on your decisions and your emotional state. And so, you know, Complex. spouses are great, but they're not, um, they're not an objective outside party. Right. So for me, I would think of that as being either a therapist if I was in therapy or I have a mastermind group of, I've, I mean, I was used to be in a couple where it was uh two different mastermind groups of three people. I was one of three and they, it, we met every week or every other week and it was following my journey. And so then I would bring stuff to them and be like, oh, I'm feeling so this or that, you know, or I'm feeling hopeless about the business. And they're like, you just hit a million dollars in annual revenue. Why are you hopeless? So then that's a, a, a sanity check. Yeah. Sanity check of a, I should be happier about this or B, why am I not happier about this? What's going on in my mind right now that I'm not seeing reality the way that other founders are doing. And I think that's the advantage of being at an event like this, an online event. I mean, hopefully you're having the opportunity to connect with some other people and notice people who have similar interests or similar businesses to you. Um, and it's a great way to sort of spin up a group and say, hey, you have similar pain points or you're growing in similar ways. Let's, you know, let's meet once a month for the next few months and see if we can support each other and help each other, um, which is obviously one of the major benefits of having social support in a community. From a, a you know, more traditional psychological perspective, what we know about how people cope with difficult things is that if you could take one, we call it protective factors, or one skill, one way of being in the world that will help you maintain your mental health despite significant challenge. The, the most important thing is actually social relationships. Doesn't mean that you need to be an extrovert. It doesn't mean you have to be the life of the party. It just means that you have a few people who really, um, who will listen to you and show up for you and care about you and, you know, have your back, so to speak, when things are hard. So absolutely second that importance of having a, um, an objective sort of sounding board or somebody yeah. who can really um, hear you and also sort of gut check you sometimes be like, wait, hold on. Are you sure? Yeah. Are you sure that's what you mean? Another one for me is sleep. I learned to, and this, everybody, you already know this, you should sleep, you know, 
get eight hours a night or whatever. But I realized over the course of my life that the less sleep I get, if I wake up tired, I literally feel sad and I feel kind of hopeless and negative about things. Like if, if I either, you know, back to substance, like if I, if I drink too much alcohol and I wake up even not hungover, but just tired because I didn't sleep well, or I just don't get enough sleep, then my entire worldview, like my view of the, of reality changes. And I know it's probably not for everyone, uh, but it is pretty much for point. everyone. Yeah. <laughs> we like to think it's not for everyone or like, no, that doesn't apply to me. I only need four hours of sleep and I'm good to go. But, um, statistically speaking. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a big one is, and I didn't learn, I learned that too late. Like it was probably in the past five years that I finally realized I would, I would just wake up some days and just be really pessimistic. And I would make decisions, long-term decisions based on this view of the world that wasn't in reality, you know? And, and I finally realized, wait a minute, I'm just really tired or I'm just really sad, you know, for whatever reason. Again, I never had long-term depression, but certain days I would wake up. And now if I have a day like that, I just don't make big, important decisions as, yeah. as stupid as that sounds, you know, I either go take a nap, which I didn't used to carve the time out to do, or I, I just, call it a, the days, uh, maybe not a, not a good day to make. Big, well, know. that's, I mean, I think that's its own superpower is being able to recognize your emotional state and not, not criticize yourself for that or not, you know, have a big to do about it, but just recognize like, oh, I'm on a down day. It might not be the best day for me to make a big decision because, you know, I might not have all of the emotional data available that I might need, but I'm, I'm glad you brought up sleep because, um, over and over and over, my conversations around mental health now begin with a conversation about physical health. I think, you know, historically in Western medicine, we've segmented the body and the mind and said, okay, like you go to your general practitioner for something about your heart and, oh, that old thing that's in your head, maybe go to a psychologist or, you know, just good luck. But really, um, that segmentation is absolutely artificial, and there's almost no separation between our mental and physical health, so much so that something like 20 minutes of heart-elevating exercise three times a week is as helpful for treating mild depression as some of our more more often utilized antidepressant medications. So when we are really taking care of our bodies, which means movement, it means sleep, and it means nutrition and water, um, those are that's the first line of defense for taking care of our mental health. And again, I think when we are under pressure, when we are trying to grow, when we are doing everything in the business from HR to accounting to creative work, it's really easy to sacrifice those things. It's super easy to have the like hot pocket at your desk while you're running around typing, doing a million different things, or it's really easy to sacrifice your sleep. It's really easy to not get to the gym. And in fact, those are almost always the wrong sacrifices to make. I would so prefer that people just shave an hour off of their workday and give more time to caring for their bodies um, because generally speaking, that's going to increase your, your neurological efficiency and productivity simply by really taking care of, you know, of the packaging that's holding your brain together. Yeah. And I mean, this took me a long time to learn because I used to not eat well and, you know, do all the stuff. I didn't exercise for a decade or more. Um, and what I figured out is that now I do, I work less 
than I probably ever have, but I'm more effective at it because I'm so highly focused in the hours that I'm there. And I think some of the things I've done is I don't particularly enjoy exercise. That doesn't bring me a lot of, of joy intrinsically, but I know that I need to do it. So I don't, I don't go to the gym. I don't spend an hour because it just, it's hard for me to do that. I literally throw on running shoes and I run for about 15 to 20 minutes and that's it. And I try to do that like five days a week and that's enough. And you know what? I probably, I, I'm a runner. I ran, you know, you and I met on the track and back in college, I probably should or could run a lot further than that, but I just, I kind of have a tough time carving out the time. So I'm just doing the bare minimum, I think to like minimum to viable. Yeah. Like yeah. exercise routine, right? It's pretty simple. Um, then for sleep, yeah, I just regulate that pretty heavily. And then with diet, I mean, one thing that that we've done as we had the means to do is, uh, you know, I used to eat microwave burritos every day for lunch. And now we, once a week, we get a delivery, like meal delivery, that's like paleo, gluten-free or whatever. And it's it's good stuff. And it's it, crunchy granola. It's cr Yeah, well, it's chicken and stuff, but it's, <laughs> chicken and vegetables. And, or we could make it ourselves, but frankly, you know, sometimes you just don't have the time. So being at first I was like, Oh, these are expensive. We shouldn't do it. But like, I'm willing now to make that trade off, you know, to, to put in the, a little bit of money, a little bit of time to kind of be better at these things. Yeah. So I really break down, um, preventative mental health care into sort of three components. The first is the body. That's the first, there are three B's. That's the first B. The second B is breath. Um, and, I can appreciate how irritating it is when you're feeling upset or stressed out or having, you know, an off day and someone's like, ah, just take a deep breath. Cause doesn't that just sound really, really overly simplified? Um, but there's a tremendous amount of science behind the power of being able to take a couple really low, slow, deep breaths and having it reset your anxiety response, reset your mood and actually counteract the level of, um, kind of emergency response that might be happening in your body at any given time. So there's a there's a, a lot of data and science behind the vagus nerve, which is what's driving this process. Um, but we have a minute, so I thought maybe we would just do a quick little exercise of breathing. And again, this is a super powerful tool. I have used this with recently returned combat veterans and you know people struggling with domestic violence, things that are really high intensity things. And this simple kind of breath practice works across the board. So, you know, I think it works for entrepreneurs too. So the the secret to a mental health fueling breath is one that's low and slow almost impossible to be really anxious and also take low and slow breaths. So low means into your belly. So wherever you are, just at home there, you could put one hand over your belly button. Rob can be my, my model here. One hand over your belly button. And I like to put one hand kind of over my heart center. And think about as you inhale, you can even look down at your hand. See if you can inhale in a way where you're sort of filling your belly so that your hand rounds. It like moves away from your spinal cord. So you want to think about rounding your belly first, and then your chest might rise a little bit later. So the first part of the breath is the belly, and then secondly, the chest. And then as you exhale, it's reversed. First is chest, then belly. And when you exhale, you're pulling your belly button in towards your spinal cord. So this is very similar to yoga breathing. If you've done yoga or I, I'm not a singer, but I understand many singers use the same kind of practice. 
And the simple strategy is to take four breaths, four seconds in, four seconds out. And that should be enough to at least give you a a fighting shot at a reset if your mental state is getting a little bit wonky. So four by four breath, four breaths into the belly, four seconds in, four seconds out. And, you know, you can feel like a new human. Yeah, I use this, again, as someone with, you know, I'd say above average anxiety just in my everyday life and work. I use this. I don't necessarily do four exactly, but I will sit and close my eyes and breathe just to channel. You know, when I feel stuff coming up, to channel and clear the mind, and then um, rethink about a problem. You know, or like re-enter it. I also do this. I do a lot of public speaking, and I don't get nervous, but I get elevated. You know, you you you, you feel get this adrenaline, excited, amped up. Yep. And and I don't want to. I mean, I think this is for anyone who, who does any type of speaking or presenting. If you do get nervous or um, or are you, you're amped up because when you walk out, they'll hear it in your breath, right? You know, in the microphone, your breath will be shaky and, and it impacts things. So if you've ever seen me backstage before a talk, like all I'm doing is walking around, I'm thinking about my talk and I'm just doing deep breaths in and out and it, and then I can walk on stage and just sound, even though, you know, I am like amped up. I'm you not, sound I calm. sound like it. Yeah. Yeah. So the third part of a good preventative mental health routine. We we did body, we did breath. The third piece is your brain for sake of alliteration. Um, and this is really paying attention to your, the, you know, the black box between your ears, noticing your thinking patterns, um, being someone who is curious about your emotional reactions, just being a general observer of your own self. We this may also be called self-reflection, just developing the ability to say, hey, I am having a down day today. It's probably not the best day for me to make this hiring decision. Or I am feeling pretty anxious. It's probably not the right state of mind to have this difficult conversation with one of my employees. It needs to wait or it needs to. I need to adjust my state before I go into that challenging situation. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know that I have much to add to that, but I, yeah. And so in terms of like really concrete skills, one of the things that uh, consistently is shown over and over in the psychological literature to be really, really helpful in this is the practice of keeping a journal. Um, Because that allows you to be an observer or an investigator into your own internal state. And, you know, I think sometimes we hear about journaling and we think like, dear diary, and we're writing everything that we thought and felt over the course of our day, sort of like we're a 15-year-old girl. Um, And that's not necessarily uh, helpful or needed. Um, A simple journaling practice that I think packs a lot of punch is at the end of your workday, simply writing down one sentence about the high point of your day, what was the moment of the day when you were really thriving, when you felt a lot of joy, and a second sentence about the low point of your day. What was the thing that really like sucked your energy or made you feel really frustrated or alone or or whatever's going on? And simply noticing that phenomenon in your work life over time, if you do this regularly, you see these amazing patterns in like, oh, wait, dealing with that specific vendor or that specific employee over and over and over is a low point in my work life, which, wow, gives you really great insight as to um, whether or not you should keep that interaction style or whether or not you you know, you want to have your, your co-founder or your colleague handle that vendor. 
whether there's something that you can do to change that source of life suck or stress or strain. And similarly, when you notice the moments in your life where it's like, oh, I'm doing great. I'm really thriving. This feels really good. How do you how do you do more of that? You know, how do you shift your job description as your business grows so that you're doing maybe more outward facing, public speaking, the face of the brand? Maybe that's your jam. Maybe that feels really satisfying to you. Um, but you won't necessarily know how to make those decisions unless you collect the data, unless you pay enough attention to your own internal state to know this is good for me. This is not so good for me. This is tough for me. So I think a simple journaling practice like that goes a long way. Um, yeah, it, it took me until boy, it had to have been my mid thirties until I was able to identify, I, I, didn't do journaling and I probably should have because I just kind of gr ground it out and figured it out on my own. But when I wake up in the morning, I can typically feel like this is my sentiment today, you know, and this is, these are the things I should do. I also use, um, I use Trello to organize my to-dos and anytime I have a to-do that sticks at the top for a long time, I know that that's a problem and that I probably shouldn't, I should be delegating that, hiring it out and not doing it, you know, and I even have this one section where I'll throw things that I do but I didn't enjoy. And I, I did begrudgingly. Totally. That I collect over time. And then I try to see, is there a pattern there? Like, do we need to hire someone to do all of that? Or does this have to get done? You know, I don't know. It It is. It's just, it's kind of mind, you know, I, I'm not in necessarily into mindfulness, meditation, all that stuff. It's just not, it doesn't necessarily. But you should be. I know I should be, but it doesn't fit my personality, I think, very well. But I think mindfulness of just being aware of how you feel and then being aware of why, why do I feel this way? I was walking around last week this one day, just super, I was like super stressed, anxious, and just wound up and feeling terrible. And I kept saying, why am I feeling this way? And it turned out I'd had this conversation a half hour earlier and there was someone on Twitter said, you know, or whatever. But once I identified that, I was like, oh yeah, that is kind of a hanging thread that I need to deal with, but it's not that big of a deal. And yet my body's reaction to it was out of whack. And if I wasn't aware of that, I wouldn't have, I just, I was able to kind of left brain myself out of it in essence mm -hmm. saying like, hey, throw it in the Trello board, deal with this later because you have to write this email or whatever, but it wasn't that big of a deal. So, yeah. You know, I think a last thought, and I want to make sure we have some time for questions because um, we could talk about this stuff forever, but it, what's the point if it's not helpful to you all? So um, make sure that we have lots of time for questions. I know Bruce is um, going to facilitate that, but the last thing that I want to say that um, is probably somewhat counterintuitive, but I think is really a core piece of staying mentally well, especially in the midst of sort of the COVID experience, is that we as grown-ups need play probably more than we ever have. And play means purely engaging in activities that bring us joy. They're not necessarily outcome oriented. They're not necessarily things that are deeply productive. They don't necessarily make money, but they're things that are either creative or athletic or making great cakes, like things that just we do because they bring us joy. When we're carrying a lot of stress and strain and the fate of the world feels pretty overwhelming, um, and there's a lot of unknowns and uncertainty, there's there's no way to really counterbalance that heaviness except with lightness. Um, so that means getting on your hands and knees with your kids and really like building some crazy Lego thing. Or it means, like I said, 
baking a cake or learning how to barbecue something fabulous and interesting that that you've never learned before. Um, it can mean yoga. It can mean, you know, I literally do circus acts and circus performance because that's my play. Tabletop games. For Tabletop games for you. Yeah. And again, that's that's trickier in quarantine when we can move around less, but no less important. So it's definitely a time, I think, as entrepreneurs to double down some of that creative problem solving into thinking about how you and members of your family can continue to play well, despite the extraordinary amount of stress and pressure and uncertainty that, that many of us are just absorbing in the culture at large, much less in our own businesses and in our own families. So thank you for your um, for your attention, and I think we'll pause there and just you know we're happy to to field any questions that you might have related to mental health relationships, entrepreneurship, all the tabletop things. games. <laughs> That's awesome! Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate you being able to join, um, Dr. Sherry Walling and Rob. Thank you for joining in as well. Listen to your podcast, both of them. A um, couple of questions for you guys, actually. So. Uh, a, a lot of us have uh, team members, employees, people that are close, very family business oriented as well. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you help support them, right? Uh, how do you uh, help give clarity and transparency to them so that they're also fit and able to contribute to the company's growth too? You know, I think in a lot of ways, it, it does start with you modeling menti- mentally healthy practices. It, you know, if you're someone who as a leader is taking a lunch break every day or someone who is um, giving time and attention to things like exercise, like those things become contagious. They become part of the culture of a company or even the culture of a family when you just, you do them. And so you're leading the way. I think it's also, um, you know, really healthy and helpful to check in with people perhaps more now than ever around their own emotion state and say, you know, what are the things that we can problem solve for you in order to help you manage anxiety better? I also, I do one-on-ones with my direct reports and I do them monthly because I have pretty senior reports, but I mean, there's a lot of, um, companies that do weekly, you know, manager does a weekly one-on-one with all of their reports. And frankly, I I tell them, we we don't, we can't talk about work, work. Like, don't tell me about, you know, a project we're working on together. Tell me about you. This is your time. And so this is your time to raise issues. But I ask them questions like, you know, what's been the, what's been the highlight of the past month? What's been the low light? What's bothering you right now? What's your mental state like? And I'm not a therapist. I mean, I tell them up front, like, I'm not your therapist, you know, but I I do want to make sure that you're, that you're, feeling good about this. And and things that often come up are, because we're a remote team, someone brings up, hey, I'm feeling super isolated right now. So then I'm like, all right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to get this Slack channel. We're going to combine them. So there's more, you know, I mean, you just, I then am able to kind of troubleshoot it. Or sometimes I'm not. Sometimes it's like, I am having a tough time personally because my family, extended family is doing something. And then in, in those cases, I just listen, you know, and, and kind of do it. But I think if you don't have those regular touch points, it's hard to to know what's going on with people. I I do think for lots of the entrepreneurs I work with, there is a little bit of a tendency to when they're confronted with a problem that someone else is having, their way of caring about that problem is to try to fix it. And that's usually outside the scope of what we can do as employers or as team leaders. Um, Emotional presence and empathy and good listening are also a gift. Like they're also really helpful. So I think 
not feeling the pressure to take on the woes of the world or feel like, okay, someone on your team is having a hard time, therefore you must do something about it. Um, that we can show up and care and be present without without owning all of it is is probably a helpful reminder for lots of us. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. Without owning it and taking it on personally. I mean, I've encouraged some folks, they'll say things like, hey, I'm uh, struggling. And it's like, okay, why don't you take a day or two off? I'm not trying to fix it, but I am, I give them permission right away. Take a day or two off or work half, work half week next week. You know, it's things like that to try to help them sort it out themselves, I think. That's great. Yeah, thank you. And my last question Leslie brought up too uh, in the comments is having a to-do list to write these things down. Rob, you brought up the point of putting some of the things that were done in a list of maybe you did enjoy or didn't enjoy, which I find interesting um, also because then you can help Maybe that is the role that that allows you to be able to focus. Danny over at Denver Printhouse before was talking about how he loves being on the production side and being kind of a scientist there. And he's able to delegate all the rest of the roles out. How often maybe do you, do you recommend looking at that list? To, to Is it a quarterly thing that you comb through it to re-review and say, okay, I, I, my next financial goal is to be able to hire for this role? Or how do you execute that? I, I would think about personally doing it monthly. I think it depends on how, you know, how many, if you have five employees versus 50 employees, you're hiring at different paces and everything. But um, monthly has been a good cadence for me. I think weekly's too often and quarterly feels like that in a, you know, I'm in the startup world. A quarter feels like a year in that space because we move so fast and we're doing so much. Sure. I will Got say that one of the things that I found to be helpful and work with a lot of entrepreneurs around is the practice of taking a retreat, maybe twice a year, maybe quarterly if you can afford to, where you you go away for two nights and you kind of get out of the day-to-day -day of your business and really spend some time on those bigger self-reflective questions. What should my role be right now? Where am I growing? What things do I need to offload onto somebody else? Like asking the bigger questions about like what in my life is satisfying and what in my business is working for me rather than continuing to sort of march on and do the same thing day in and day out without being very self-reflective about it. And we that's talk a really, about that in the book too. Just That's a really great point. Actually, something that I read Bill Gates does is I think he goes away weekly to some remote area and is able to read and write down all of his thoughts to help plan for the year. Thank you guys so much. This is Dr. Walling. You guys can find her. Look for her podcast, Zen Founder. If you want to buy her book, it's called The Entrepreneur's Guide to Keeping Your Shit Together and How to Run Your Business Without Letting It Run You. Buy these two. Thank you guys so much. Thanks, guys. Take care. Great to be here.